Welcome to Conversations on Public Safety, The Den, a podcast that asks, are we ready to reset the landscape of public safety? Whether you're a veteran of criminal justice, a newcomer who wants to foster change for the next generation, or someone actively involved in the field grappling with the complexities of decision-making, you're invited to the conversation. In each episode, you'll hear from a panel of four highly respected criminal justice thought leaders for an unscripted, unedited, and vulnerable discussion about the future changes needed for policing. Together, they hold more than 100 years of experience and are using our insight to help evolve practices, policies, training, and community relationships. They're challenging themselves and you to get introspective and question the status quo. Let's dive into today's topic. Hello again, and welcome to The Den. When we first started these conversations, we were frustrated by various things. And it's interesting from all of our backgrounds that we recorded these as consultants. We are the folks that other agencies and organizations bring in to help them think differently, help them challenge their norms, and hopefully provide recommendations that are worth it. Since we've all worn other hats, we have had an interesting effort in adjusting to the consulting space, where we can strongly encourage or recommend, but absolutely sometimes have no control over what gets implemented or what actions actually get taken. And we don't get to course correct some of the things that we see happen. We perhaps just get to call attention to them and talk through different strategies for other leaders or other rising leaders to overcome them. It perhaps is both the blessing and the curse of consultants. We are the ones that have a lot of opinions and perspectives, and it is often second-guessed and judged from the other side of the table for people who recognize that we don't walk in their shoes every day. And it's that that gives us a really interesting perspective, considering that most people don't walk in the shoes of a police officer every day either. But yet there's a lot of opinions about how public safety and policing should be done. In this episode, I start us off on a conversation about not only when they were police chiefs, but also as they've been working on consulting teams, what does this look like? How does this work? And what should we be expecting from consultants, not just what we bring and our own ethics and efforts, but what should other folks be expecting and working as consultants in policing. I hope you enjoy. Let's enter the den. Steve, years ago you said to me, hey, do you ever wonder if you stopped doing this work, what would happen? Like, would people notice? (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, man, I don't know. You know, part of the consulting thing, sometimes there's no fruition, right? It's not like, as Harold moves some dirt around his property, right? Like there's a pile of dirt and then eventually you have flower beds or something, right? (laughs) So you get to see those things, like kind of going back to retail of like, man, if somebody just walked in the door, they asked for a pair of pants, I sold them a pair of pants, they said, thank you and left. Like that transaction is so satisfying, right? Because you don't always see it and get it in consulting and, and definitely not in policing in general. So 
I guess my response to that, Steve, is I don't know if people would realize if what would happen if all the consulting for criminal justice stopped. And right. So here's that zero one. Right. We either do it this way or we do it that way. So if it stopped, if the criminal justice consulting stopped altogether, where would criminal justice or the policing world be? And if it didn't stop, what should it look like? I'm not certain. (laughs) (laughs) I remember when I was uh, doing crime analysis work for D.C. Police Department. And it was a national, we had a national conference. And I was sitting down in Texas talking to my colleague from, from Texas who was doing pretty much the same thing for cities in Texas. And that's when he first posed the question to me. What happens if we all disappeared tomorrow? If all the crime an- analysts in the room disappeared tomorrow, <laughs> we'd be really missed. <laughs> and I, I often wondered, what real value are we really bringing to the field? And when we do our analysis and when we point things out, is anybody really listening? What impact are we really having? Yeah, I continue to work at this and continue to be, a, I guess, a, a, a police whisperer. <laughs> hey, you know, you should try this or write a report. Look at this. Or as a monitor, you know, I think you need to try this. But always having some doubt. First about what I'm telling them, does it, am I right? <laughs> and two, if they do it, will it make a difference? <clears throat> well, I just find, I guess sometimes uh, doing this for 40 some years and watching this one step forward, one step backwards, one step sideways, <laughs> you know, relative to t- trying to promote change and I guess uh, hoping that things always happen faster than you think you like. And then uh, the experience as a monitor, as you are, you know, I guess, as all, all of us are encountering now, the difficulties, even when you have a court order, even when you have everything working in your favor, you have, you have the, you're in a dream position. Ha-ha. <laughs> I get to really tell these guys, you know, what to do based on this court order. And watch all the games that go on and all the, and, and realize, you know, just what you're up against. Just, just, just really fully understanding the challenge of creating change. And you, and you made a good point, but you also, I, I guess you made another point when you talked about experience in Fayetteville, that uh, what can happen when leadership changes. Yep. And how you know, much of the work done, if not completely erased, can be certainly, you know, halted or, or yep. people, you know, sent in a different direction sometimes. Yep. Yeah, but that's the other half of the question, Steve. It's not a matter of if we stop or are we making a difference, right? It's the if consulting does make a difference, right? If some of the efforts that we do make a difference, then what about consulting needs to change to help institutionalize that difference past? I think every police chief should have an outside consultant uh, sitting next to them because never seeks to, to amaze me that a lot of times, especially when you're, I kind of call it, when you inbreed yourself and you keep creating yourself over and over again, you're going to keep getting this, the same thing, that you're, you're going to believe that whatever you've been doing and how you've been doing it is the right way because that's how you progress your, yourself through it. And I think it, it always takes, and not necessarily an outside chief, 
but it takes someone that has other perspectives and proven perspectives to be able to put forth new ideas. But with that, you know, that person, that chief, that organization has to have a willingness to accept it. Can I bring it back around to the knowing all of these things from your positions as police chiefs and and all the years of of working along police chiefs, then what is consulting supposed to look like? Right, right now, consulting for some folks looks like I come in, I ask a lot of questions, and I write you 50 recommendations until you come up. I think think part of that, Jessica, and and Steve and I saw this, and and Harold too, whereby not only have to bring a consultant in to identify and make recommendations, but you need to bring them in after those recommendations in order to implement those recommendations for two reasons. Because, yes, I can make these recommendations, but if you don't have somebody pushing that organization to implement them and help them implement them, then they'll sit on a shelf. And I also believe that it's based on the credibility of a consultant. You don't recommend something that you couldn't implement. So, you know, give me an opportunity to help you implement the recommendations that I've made. That's where you see the true value of a consultant, not that report that they give you in the recommendation, but the ability to implement those recommendations. Now, what I'm about to say may cost me future consulting jobs, but uh, you know what I find myself doing when I'm doing some of these community interviews, I realized, and I guess a real strong example of that was what we experienced in Charleston and even in North Charleston and in other communities as well. I'm experiencing it now to a certain extent in Richmond. The push for reform doesn't really come from cities or police chiefs, (laughs) the real push for reform comes from community stakeholders and those that can better organize themselves and influence the political process are the ones that begin to to make things happen. That's how consent decrees happen. You know, folks get organized, they file lawsuits and they get DOJ interested, somewhat interested. Next thing you know, you have a consent decree. And in other places we've worked, it's been you know, coalitions that have forced city council members and others to raise the profile of issues, which, you know, led to consultants being called in to work on things. But what I do, understanding that dynamic is, when I'm doing interviews, when I'm being able to, to spend time with folks, I tell those activists just how important they are and how critical they are. And I try to arm them with as much information as I can, because I know that once we leave, once the spotlight is off, that it's going to be up to them to make things happen, to continue to to push for change. And so much of what I do while I'm doing this work in generating recommendations, I'm also trying to empower those community groups, those activists, so they can be in a position once we leave to continue to push for change. So, Steve, I I was having a conversation yesterday with a captain and a chief who are heading into a series of community meetings. I personally think that the person that they have running their community meetings, which is a a quote unquote partner in the nonprofit space of the community, may not be the best person. Right. Like, I think that's where the value of having an external person like yourselves. Right. And even when I've been the 
person to kind of walk into the schools and the barbershops and sit on the corner and the porches and everything else, right? Like that sometimes it, it does take an outsider to do those things. And there's the usual debates of, you know, because everybody in the community already knows those folks. So they've heard it from those folks before, whether it's the police chief banging their chest or otherwise, like in uniform, out of uniform, they've heard it before. And so there's a lack of of trust and, and legitimacy sometimes when they've heard it before and then they don't see any actions, particularly when the community says, well, I can't do this without them and they're not doing anything. So how does that change in some of these conversations for you? Well, so much of this is, is personality driven. Yeah. Yes. I mean, hell, you are who you are. And I think so much of that had very little to do with how you were trained. Oh. It had more to do with being Harold. Uh, listen, listen, let me tell you something, Steve. I, I'll disagree with you there. I worked for some really great chiefs. I worked for two really, really great ones. Dennis Nowicki was a real change agent in the 90s that we needed. The other was Rodney Monroe. And I, I had an opportunity to learn from both of them the, the different skill sets that they brought. Nowicki had no personality and no no skills in building relationships at all, but he was he was a smart guy and what we needed at the time. But the things that I took to Fayetteville, I believed in, but I also saw them work in Charlotte. And I had the benefit of, of buying in early to, to, to the guy there in the, on the screen I, into his philosophy, and I stayed close to him and I learned. Yeah, but you're still Harold. And, uh, you know, I think so much of it had to do with you being Harold. And I can say the same thing about Rodney. It's more about who you are as, as persons. And who you, very, who you little, very little to do with your training. Who you allow yourself to be, Steve. You got to allow yourself to be, be vulnerable. Being a chief or being a, a command official, people think it comes with, I have to be a certain way. I have to carry myself a certain way. And, and, and if you look at it from the community's perspective, 90% of the time, most chiefs are only seen on TV, standing up in front of something, making some public announcement or, or whatever, and you become untouchable by people in the community. Well, only certain people in the community actually have access to you. But I believe that everyone should have access to me. And with that, how do I put myself in a position where they can have access to me. And I don't care if you're one of the most prolific complainers around. On Mondays and Fridays, I had a list. Those that criticize or you could never make happy, I would call them up. Mondays and Fridays, how you doing, Mr. Jones? How, what's going on? And they would just, ah, oh, no, 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 no. This ain't right. That ain't right. This ain't doing this. It ain't doing that. You know, and I just listened and talked to them but they could never criticize me because the only thing that they mostly criticize you about is the fact that they can't access you. They can't talk to you. You're not listening. You're not doing anything because they're not, not don't have the ability to communicate with you. But if you give them the ability to communicate with you after a while, they have nothing else to complain about. <laughs> they can't sit up in a meeting. Well, when you say that, Mr. Jones, I talked to you last week, about this, you know, okay, I'm, I'm done. They're not complaining about how much you spend on vehicles or if you've managed to do the budget for something else. <laughs> no, no, but, but if you don't give them an opportunity, 
you know, I tell them, you know, if you want to know, holy, if you don't allow them to touch your garment, be a part of it, take their hand, their level of, of understanding, not, you know, where they are in society or anything, but their level of experience or what, what's in their community, you got to be, be understanding of that. And if you're not, they will rip you apart. Yes, sir. I find that uh, they, community members respond better when they feel they have that connection to you. Yeah, I talked to the chief the other day. Exactly. You exactly. know, uh, yeah, you know, uh, he was, uh, he came by here and uh, yeah, we, we, had a, we had a moment. So, yeah, I mean, anytime they feel they can make any kind of connection. And, you know, Steve, that goes to, that, I call it hugging the little old ladies. If you're out in public and somebody comes up as chief or even as a, as a ranking official, and they're kind of surprised, hey, I saw you on TV or something like that the other night, and you hug them, you give them just a little, you know, put your arm around them. That goes a long way, brother, I'm going to tell you. It, it, it really does. And, and not that I think it's a big deal for me, but how big a deal it is for them. In yeah. today's world, that's really big, you know, getting yeah. picture taken. Yep. I got criticized several times for for uh, thugs wanting to take their picture with me. And I'd take my picture. I love to take my picture, and then and then my people would say, "Well, you you get your picture made with a known criminal." Well, he's the one that asked, so if he wants to put it out there. He's afraid of the chief. I'm okay with that, you know. And surprisingly, they would do that. They would put that picture out on Facebook, and then they would take some heat from it. So those things I think are invaluable. But we put our chiefs in these cocoons. And I'm too busy to talk, and I've got too big a schedule. Well, I got news for you. I think the Chiefs probably got more time on their hands than most command level folks do. And and so if somebody wants to come to the office and and give you a coffee cup or you know something like that, you ought to take the time to do that. You know, Rodney and I both work for this guy, Marion Barry in D.C. In spite of all of his faults, Marion was a, a brilliant politician and managed to uh, back. People got so, you know, he was declared his honor and mayor for life because they couldn't figure out a way to get him out of office <laughs> because he was so beloved. And I can remember we were in a meeting one day and he went to uh, point someone who was clearly one of his political enemies, wanted to bring him in and appoint him to a job. And, you know, his advisors were chiming in and saying, why are you bringing him back? What, what? You know, he doesn't, he hear about the things he said about you a few months ago. And Marion said, well, I'd rather have them inside pissing out than outside pissing in. (laughs) So he would go after his detractors. He would spend time with them. He would talk to them. He would not ignore them. And he wouldn't make a lot of negative comments about them. And he would try to bring them in the tent. He never gave up on them. Yeah, And sometimes it worked. Sometimes it didn't. But... That way he was able to at least neutralize him because mm-hmm. he did try to reach out. You don't see too much of that anymore. Instead, people want to demonize you if they find out that you disagree with them and they want to turn you into some kind of a, you know, enemy. And uh, they think in terms of we, you know, us versus them mentality. And so I see it so much, this, this polarization, us versus them. When I hear, you know, police leadership talk sometimes, like, you know, we're going to get them. This is what we're going to do to them. Sometimes you want to ask, well, who is them? <laughs> yep. 
And uh, it scares me. I mean, that's what I'm saying. You know, after after all these years of plugging away, and I was sitting on some of these meetings with uh, analysts and, and and chiefs, where they're helping to figure out how to help another community, and how they'll still talk in terms of uh, of us versus them. It's if efforts for you know to promote community safety is all about identifying some enemies and going after the enemy. And removing the enemy. <laughs> they try to dehumanize folks that they're responsible for policing, in spite of all of our procedural justice trainings and talk about community policing. You still, we sometimes we just don't seem to be able to penetrate. And uh, when you interview these community members, you still hear these stories time and time again. I heard one the other day where. Uh, officer told a 13-year-old he was having words with, well, wait till you're 18, then I'm going to come and take you to prison. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you, know, you hear conversations like that, and you just kind of scratch your head and say, why can't we seem to penetrate? Why can't we get through? You know, why is it that it's almost endemic across departments, no matter, in spite of all that's going on with these post-Floyd demonstrations, with all the trainings that we've done, with all the 21st century policing principles that we've gotten on and talked about, why does that persist? Why is that so hard to, for us to tackle? And I still really much struggle with that. Well, it's all about leadership, Steve. The, the cops will do what the leader wants them to do. And, yep. and it, it really comes down to this. I want to interrupt this section of the den because my answer, or my continued answer, to why we don't have penetration sent me on a diatribe about a current client and a couple of observations that I've seen in states that are struggling with how to make changes, particularly among their juvenile populations. And so why I want to protect the identity of our clients and some of the struggles they have because they are not part of the panel of this podcast, I do want to share with our listeners the importance of understanding the positioning of community members and different victim services groups or community-based intervention groups and what they need to be supported in order to change the patterns of violence and trauma in their neighborhoods. And so as you all listen to the rest of this podcast of this episode, as well as our succeeding episodes, please keep in mind that there are well-laid-out plans on all the components for violence reduction, and some of the best and promising practices that cities across America have been able to implement. And it really takes transformation and dedication for those things to happen. I'll let us get back to the panel discussion on the role of consultants and community members and training of police officers. I actually failed my, this is going to sound so petty at this point, I actually failed my first attempt at my systems comprehensive exam for Arizona State here for the PhD program, because I wrote about this as a response to their systems question, because I'm so passionate about it, but, and it answered the question, but I perhaps was, right, my passion for it gets me too nearsighted to realize it's going in front of people who don't believe that part of policing. So they're going to fail me on it all. <laughs> I'm, I'm about to tell them everything that contradicts their belief and they're going to push back on that, right? Yeah. And so 
you can't right like the reason why penetration doesn't happen is because contradiction and the challenge of like if you challenge my like core identity right my core belief i'm not going to be able to absorb it and when you've trained generations of officers to believe that their core existence is this locking up or this is what your role this is what you do and then you try to contradict that at the same time, like it's just a, and it clashes, right? And so the way I responded to it then and, and the way I would respond to it now is, is some of those things of like, right, it is a leadership aspect, right? But it's also about the system. And so the system can't tell you that your role is to lock them up and punish and do whatever when the other part of the system is, no, no, we're not accepting people. There's a contradiction to this system and the process. But if all you're telling me to do is the only thing that I have is to lock them up and, and yet you're not going to prosecute or you're not going to hold that person into prison because we've had the JRI reforms and we've had, you know, other smart policing or smart prosecution reforms and everything else. So I was having a conversation with the chief yesterday. He's like, I don't understand why all of those partners come to the table for this effort, but they will not show up at the table for this effort. And before I answered him, I said, why do you think that is? And he's like, well, everybody believes in this mission, right? This is about preventing victimization. It's about having a safe community. It's about safety in the home. And they come to the table because that's their part of their mission. And I'm like, okay, great. So that, that aligns with their ideology, both as individuals and in the role that they play in, in rehabilitation and with the YWCA and the service provider and everything else. I said, but you're over here only banging the drum of arrest. It doesn't fit their ideology. And so they're not showing up because they don't see themselves there. They know off the top that they don't align. They don't fit. And that's why you don't have penetration. And it's like, you could see the light bulb go off for him and the captain yesterday. Like they were like, huh, you're right. We've been sitting here saying our gang unit is just going to arrest. That's a newsflash. People don't have gang units anymore. It never included any of the terms that aligns with what, the, which is why they're showing up at this table, but not at your table over here, yeah. right? And it's like, you could just see the doop, 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 you know, going off. And I'm like, okay, well then like, this is, this is something to consider, but it's not about saying you shouldn't be locking people up, right? It's not diminishing the fact that that 16 year old did shoot and kill someone. Right. We're not asking you to ignore it, but separating that thing out is really hard for them. Yeah. I had one community person tell me that they think it's the training. They were went through the, um, the Citizens Academy and got interested in what uh, was going on on the police training side. And they, and they said, well, you know, I looked at the training curriculums, Steve, and he said, like, most of it is paramilitary, military stuff. He said, well, they spent all their time training on how to shoot people and how to put people in holes and how to, you know, drag people off and, and these different tactics. No wonder they come out of that training thinking that uh, that's what they do, that they're, they're soldiers. Warriors. They're warriors. They're warriors, yeah. Yeah, I'm doing an RCT project right now, and the initial information about police training so it's a randomized control project about certain information, soft skills that's delivered both online and in person and if the knowledge and retention changes. 
And the interesting part is, is that the motivation, both in how officers interact with the online, as well as in-person deliveries at the beginning of the academy, when they're like excited to be officers, they're excited, you know, they're like, yep, this information totally clicks about how to communicate during crisis, during motor vehicle stops, et cetera, et cetera. Makes sense. What we've seen for the two of the six academies that we're testing so far is that at the end of the academy, they're like, this is bullshit. I'm going to get killed on a traffic stop. Ninjas dropping out of ceilings. <laughs> and of course, you know, one of the things that we not part of our right, we're only testing our topic and our areas when we're not there observing the entire academy. But we know what's happening during that academy is that paramilitary training by other instructors and, and why we can't control that input, right? We see that change in attitude and behaviors at the end. So it's going to be really interesting to see when these things come out. So let me, let me offer this because I, I think it starts even further back than training. It starts during the hiring process. We spend, police departments spend a ridiculous amount of money putting candidates through psychological and and emotional testing to find the most normal person that you can find to put in an academy and be a police officer. And in 26 weeks, we turn them into a paranoid individual who who does believe they're going to get killed either, you know, sitting at the restaurant with their girlfriend or their wife or husband, or as you said, Jessica, ninjas falling, you know, dropping down the ceiling. That's what we do. So, you know, we spend all this money trying to find the most normal person and we turn them into complete paranoid, everybody's out to kill me people. Uh, and then we put them on the street. Oh man, this was an episode that really took me back from my very first days of meeting and working with Harold in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and also recognizing that ninjas really don't fall from the ceiling, even though that's how you're trained. As a consultant that works with police departments, I think it's interesting to think about how can we best help. We're often the folks that are coming in to assess training or deliver training, and we do need to be mindful of our messaging or our strategies. More importantly, we need to understand where should we be fixing the problem. And so as I think back to this episode in 2021, where we really start diving in to Where do we start in resetting public safety? Where do we start in reforming and innovating the role and responsibilities of a public safety agencies today? And sometimes we think it starts with that hiring process like you just heard Harold recommend. If we spend the money putting information and assessments into candidates from the very beginning, does it all go to waste if all we do is teach them that ninjas are going to fall to the ceiling and every training after that is paramilitary-like? And if we start with the training, both in the basic academy, like some of the academy innovations that you heard me mention, are we going to be able to course correct and control the messaging going forward? I hope you enjoyed this, and I hope this episode sparked a few ideas for you. As you continue forward listening to The Den, you get to hear how we start to reshape the hiring, training, and perhaps the overall structure of a police department. See you on the next episode. Thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about today's topic, idea analytics, or work with them, visit their website, analyticsbyidea.com. 
There, you'll find their latest blog posts, case studies, and contact information. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe, rate, and review Conversations on Public Safety, The Den, on your preferred podcasting platform. See you next time.